As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me to break down the USA's 6-2 win over Panama is a man who enjoyed Joaquini getting a brace. It's Joe Lowry. <laughs> Hello, Joe. Thank you very much for joining me today. Of course. I love the name parallel parallels between me and him. I appreciate your wife cluing me in on the pronunciation after I've butchered it several times <laughs> over my last few appearances. Joe Acchini and I, I think, would get on just fine. Yeah, Joe Acchini, Joe Lowry. I did also think if we're talking about braces, we could have gone with Sebastian Joto, but that felt a little bit more <laughs> uh, sweaty. It was, it was more work to be done there. Yeah, that one was a little bit forced. I'd give that a 4 out of 10, but the, the Joe Acchini one is a solid 8 out of 10. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate that because I kind of hate myself for it. Uh, but <laughs> I figure if Daryl wants to begin with puns, I will I will continue that to the extent that I can for as long as I can until they make me physically ill. Uh, what did not make me physically ill was a 6-2 win. As I said, the United States with that win over Panama, not the strongest Panama team we've ever seen. Uh, Joe and I are going to take a look at some of the goals. We're not going to break them down uh, all individually, but what we're going to try to do is talk at least about some of them and what we could learn from them in terms of kind of general takeaways. We could talk a little bit about why the second half was maybe slightly less exciting and then maybe some big picture takeaways who had a good time, who maybe hurt themselves a little bit. What are some things we saw that we think we'll see more of going forward? What are some things we maybe won't see anymore? Uh, I have a couple of people that I think we might not see, not necessarily from this roster, but let's start with the lineup for today. If that works for you, Joe, uh, the United States go with a somewhat similar, uh, shape or a mostly similar shape, but with a few different personnel. Did you like the lineup or did you have any concerns? Yeah, I like the lineup. I, I had the opportunity to talk with Jason Davis on the radio before this game, previewing this match, and he asked me, "Fancy? How? How? <laughs> Fancy? How would you? How would you like to see the U.S. lineup, or, or how many changes, or, or what continuity do you want to see?" And I mm-hmm. think Berhalter struck the balance for me of what I was looking for in this game. Not that that really amounts to much, but he <laughs> he had a lot of players back on the field from the Wales game. He had the starting midfield, for example, all back. He had Tyler Adams at the six. Weston McKinney and Yunus Musa as the two eights. But there were differences, right? Mm-hmm. There were differences. It was Joe Akini up top instead of Sebastian Legette. It was Uli Yanez instead of Conrad on the left wing, although he and Gio Reyna switched sides quite a bit over the mm-hmm. course of these 90 minutes. 
Reggie Cannon was playing right back, and that shifted Serginho Dest from right back over to left back instead of Anthony Robinson. And then the final change of the four changes we saw in this game, Tim Ream playing as a left-sided center back instead of John Brooks. Four changes for me is an appropriate balance between let's change up a whole bunch of stuff and let's keep the exact same lineup. That number of changes was appropriate, I thought, for this game against a pretty yep. poor Panama team. What did you think, Taylor? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I think you could see the areas where when the United States looked most fluid and most comfortable on the ball it tended to be with players who had played the previous game together. Even with Serginho Dest switching to the other side of the field, it still seemed like there were better combinations. There was a bit more fluidity to it because I think they had the experience. I will say, though, I was surprised, and I, I tweeted this out, that I think my brain just gets very linear and very like, okay, this is how it is, and so that's how it is now. And in my mind, as soon as Dest played right back, for whatever reason, he's just locked in at right back now. That's where he's going to be. And so when we were talking about possible left back options, you may have mentioned it briefly, but I don't think we spent much time discussing the idea of these two starting together. And I was a little bit wary of it. I think mostly just because we didn't really mention it. So I felt bad. But watching it today, it, it feels like this could very well be our starting fullback pairing. Uh, that And maybe that's a bit much to say from one game against a Panama team that were certainly not as strong as we've seen in the past, as I already said. But Cannon looked great overlapping. He looked great defensively. I thought he did a really good job keeping his shape to the extent he could. I thought the same thing for Dest, except he seemed to have embraced Burhalter's charge to be even more attacking, to get involved in the attack even more. <laughs> he did a lot of that, and I thought the two of them were excellent in this game. Yeah, I, I don't disagree at all, honestly. I think Reggie Cannon was solid about just at just about everything you could ask mm-hmm. from that right back spot and we'll talk about Panama's opening goal and his role maybe sure. in that the build up to that goal for Panama but setting that aside for a minute Reggie Cannon was solid he was the the wide option on the right side when we saw Sergio Dest play right back against Wales and when we see him play right back for anyone he goes where he wants mm-hmm. he goes inside when he wants to he stays wide when he wants to and that's fine that's fine for the US because they can compensate They can rotate the players around him to allow that spacing to be maintained. Reggie Cannon is a little bit of a simpler guy on that right side. He stays wide, and in this game, he was good at that. Uh, The U.S. would would pin Panama's left back inside with the winger on that side for the United States, allowing Cannon to have that whole right channel, Mm -hmm. and it worked well. It worked really well. And then looking at Dest on the other side, I like Sergio Dest playing on the left sometimes. I don't know if I like it more than him playing on the right, But I like him cutting inside on his right foot and creating things. There was a moment, I think it was in the first half in this game, where he gets on the ball, he cuts inside on his right foot like an inverted winger, because that's almost what he is in this 2-3-5 shape when he's playing as a left back. He cuts inside, and Yunus Musa makes a diagonal run from midfield out left and, and high between defenders, or at least into space on the outside of Panama's back line. And Dest plays him the ball. He, he essentially acts as an inverted winger from left back. So yeah, I thought the fullback pairing was good. Cannon's not great, I don't think, at any one thing. He's not elite at any one thing, but he's solid at a lot of things. And Dest is versatile enough to be good on both sides. Yeah, and I, I would agree with everything you said, because Cannon, uh, I think, doesn't really put a foot wrong, in my opinion. Or if he does, it's balanced by putting the foot right elsewhere. Uh, I think his delivery was better than I expected it to be. And then, yeah, for Dest, just the number of times he tried to take people on, he tried stuff. But then... It wasn't the sort of like Ashraf Hakimi when he was playing for Dortmund, and it was like, he's a right wing back, but he's mostly a right winger who will occasionally defend. There's one moment in the first 10 minutes, I think it's in the 10th minute, Dest is committed forward to the United States, give the ball away, and he sprints back 
a good 40 yards to close things down and basically ends up getting on, on goal side of his man who was wide open and would have been in on goal but because Dest is so focused on getting back that doesn't end up being the case and those moments I think just stood out to me because we saw him be very good on the ball I think going forward especially but then his willingness to work back and be where he needed to be defensively it, there was no slack there was no kind of switching off in any moment uh, in my opinion in this game I thought Dest was an excellent performer I don't know if I loved our center back pairing as much let's let's talk about that one for a moment because I think in our very abbreviated preview. We thought we would maybe see John Brooks. We thought maybe we would see Tim Tim Ream, but we definitely thought we would see Chris Richards. We get him later on in this game, but to start, we had Matt Miazga and Tim Ream. Why do you think, if you had to guess, Greg Berhalter went with that sort of more veteran pairing? I'm guessing he wanted to protect uh, John Brooks' very brittle body by not starting him <laughs> in this game, and that's fine. I think that's yeah. very, very understandable. Yep. And so that's that's the reason for Tim Ream starting at that left-sided center back spot. Matt Miazga, I think, I think is in this lineup almost certainly because Chris Richards isn't ready for primetime, or at least in Greg Berhalter's opinion. We see Richards off the bench, like you just said, but he does not start this game. He doesn't, he doesn't make his way into the starting 11. Matt Miazga was, was good against Wales in 95% of the moments in that game. He was good with the ball. He was really good with the ball, making those, those low, direct, line-breaking passes into the feet of attackers. He did that same thing in this game against Panama. He played those low-driven passes forward, but he was a little bit more sloppy in possession, yeah. I think. He, he had at least one turnover that I can recall specifically in the first half, giving Panama a sliver of daylight in, in that opening group, in that opening set of minutes, rather. And then defensively, I think he was somewhat shaky again. And I, I think you agree with this, especially on Panama's second goal. We saw a real lapse in defensive judgment from Matt Miazga. Yeah, let's talk about both the goals now. Let's let's start a little bit negative. And as I said, we're going to try to have some takeaways or we're going to kind of not even conclude, but just as we go, maybe make a list of things we've learned, either positive or negative. One of the things I've learned is that though these results have been mostly positive, I have more concerns or questions about our center back pairing than I think I have in the past, because I'm with you in why Miazga starts this game. I'm with you in why Tim Ream starts this game. But then for both goals, I think they're... Lack of communication is maybe partially to blame or somewhat to blame for the first goal and somewhat to blame for the second goal, but more so the first one. I don't think their communication is great. I don't think that they're doing as well in keeping that spacing tight and being aware of who's kind of come into their area. And and that just made me slightly concerned because against a Panama team that were sort of like definitely always going to counterattack, but as we said, didn't seem that technically threatening. I think the United States definitely gave them some opportunities, but I also think the two center backs, their lack of communication didn't really help either. I'm torn on the communication thing because part of me says, okay, they've been in camp for a very limited number of days. But the other part of me says, this is Matt Miazga and Tim Ream. These mm -hmm. are, are two of the most veteran guys on this roster. If they're not communicating between each other, then that might be a legitimate problem. And then even on top of that, on the first goal, at least, the positioning from yeah. Jose Fajardo is good. And so I'm a little bit hesitant to blame either one of those guys for that. But the second goal is a much, much different situation. Matt Miazka yeah. stepping forward when he really has no business doing that. And that leaves a massive gap for, again, Fajardo, I believe, mm -hmm. to, to get into the box and score that second goal to narrow the gap. At that point, it's 3-2. And the U.S. is only up by one. So, yeah, I see where you're coming from on that one, Taylor. The communication with those center backs. And then, again, looking back at the first goal, the communication between Reggie Cannon and Gio Reyna yeah. is lacking. 
Yeah. I, so the, for the first goal, uh, for people who didn't see it or don't remember, I, I tweeted out a very quick clip of this. But it's basically Panama after uh, Tyler Adams concedes a free kick in the center of the field. They, they pass the ball a little bit, and then it's a sort of lateral diagonal ball out wide. And Gio Reyna, I think, is sort of focused on that that press, the stepping forward that the United States was doing. He thinks, I think, in that moment, this is the time to go. So he's already moving forward. The ball goes in behind him, and now he's scrambling to get back. And I think because he's scrambling, he's not as focused on the sort of directing Reggie Cannon what to do or telling Reggie Cannon, like, you step ball, I'll go with your man, because Reggie Cannon is doing a thing that I praised uh uh, Serginho Dest for against Wales is that he's tracking his runner, but also trying to close down the angle so that if that ball comes in, he at least is in a position to somewhat contest it without leaving his man wide open. And I think here he just isn't able to really get in the best position when that ball comes in. But a lot of that is because I think Gio Reyna isn't able to cover or help him in that communication. And so when that happens, when there is that breakdown, I think the center backs and this is maybe communication is maybe even the wrong word, but it's more just the relationship and the awareness of each other that once that breakdown occurs, once the ball is in and Reina has to get back, I think the center backs are so focused on the developing concern out wide, they're less concerned on the man standing between them. And that's where I think just a quick like, hey, guy behind you or hey, like, make sure we step like just kind of knowing what you need to be doing in that moment is so important. Because if you don't, if you're reacting a half second late or you're just taking your focus off for a half second things like this occur that's maybe a bit more defense defensible because the united states was looking i think the stronger team in the opening minutes then this happens and they have a few more shaky moments they settle some things after that but the second goal i'm with you as well is is a confusing one for me because it's Miazga stepping. I don't think he really needs to. He has runners in front of him. He has uh, teammates in front of him who can do the defensive work. I think, again, he anticipates there's going to be a heavy touch. I'm going to be the first to get to it. I'm just going to pass it, and that will be fine. But it's not as heavy a t- heavy of a touch as he thought. And then he he does that. It's almost like when the goalkeeper like comes sprinting off their line and then stops and then goes again. It was that sort of moment of like, and that indecision opens the space up behind. Then he puts the hand in the air to call for offside when it's never going to be offside because he vacated that space. And those moments, I think, just sort of stood out to me, maybe because the U.S. looked so good overall that the negatives then are a little bit fewer and far between. So when you have a couple from one player, they stand out all the more. But I, I think I just, I would have always said it. Yeah, it's Brooks Miazga for sure. I'm not saying I changed that perspective now. I think I just have slightly less confidence in it than I did maybe a week ago. First thing, Taylor, do you hate it when players put their arms up in the in, in the air to call for offside as much as I do? I uh, yes and no. Like I get it because I I get that you're like you're trying to make sure like it's mostly a like please put your the flag up. Like I think it's what you're <laughs> what you're doing when that happens. It's an automatic thing of like right they've got to be. What I can't stand is when there's the hand in the air and the sort of stoppage of like all right we all know this is going to be offside. Like you've still got to keep moving and if anything. I, sometimes I feel like defenders can use that as a distraction. You put your hand in the air as you walk closer to the player. You're like contesting the situation, but also making sure you're still doing your defensive job. If you just stop and put your hand in the air, then you're you're not really doing either thing, and that's when I have more of a problem. That's fair. Okay, I I, I see where you're coming from on that one. So setting that aside for a minute, setting that pet peeve of mine hmm. and seemingly of yours aside, I think where we're at with the U.S. center back pool right now, and where we're at at least with the the guys who Berhalter seems to think are ready. And are towards the top of his his preferred list of center backs is John Brooks and Matt Miazga and even Tim Ream by and large are very good with the ball at their feet. 
at least passing wise. Dribbling, they're they're not going to be Virgil Van Dyke and, and glide forward into central midfield very often, at least. But but those guys are dangerous passers, and their passing is an asset to the U.S. in attack. Mm-hmm. I I, be- I I truly believe that. Defensively, yeah. though, I think we are at a place where. That the idea that they are weak defensively or at least vulnerable sometimes defensively, that idea has been reinforced for me and seems like for you in this game. If Panama can come and cause you defensive problems in moments, yes, it, it seems like those things are sustainable going forward. That that doesn't bode very well for the U.S. when they are playing a Mexico or when they are playing a higher level opponent in a game like this, even in a friendly. I think that is something that is slightly concerning and that's a, an issue that the U.S. will have to address and, and almost hope for the development of guys like Chris Richards to come quickly so that they can get more defensive solidity even with that solid passing presence. They can get that added defensive boost in the center of defense. Yeah, and I want to say here, like, because I don't disagree with anything you've said, and I think our criticisms of that pairing of the individual performances, it, it's it's fair. I don't think that it's necessarily like in dispute or we're being highly critical or highly controversial. But I will say with that in mind that this is not me saying, okay, that, that's it for Tim Ream. That's it. Like, we're, we're done with this. Let's move on. I really don't understand that approach to this because at least my vision, my view when it comes to the way Greg Berhalter is building a team is he has a style he wants us to play. He has specific things he's asking of the position of the person who's occupying that role. And he's going to put whomever does whomever is capable of doing that role the best. He's going to put them there until somebody else can do it better. And I think right now Tim Ream does a number of things the way Berhalter wants him to and better than anybody else can. And some of that is being the best backup, being the best potential deputy in a couple of different spots. So I have no problem with him continuing to, continuing to be called in. I would just like to see other players potentially challenge him for that spot and, and continue to perform better. And maybe we see an Eric Palmer Brown next time. Maybe it's a Cameron Carter Vickers. I still have my concerns about his distribution, but I just won't mind if we see a bit more experimentation. I think we will with the number of competitions we're going to have next summer, the number of minutes that will be available for lots of different players. But I hope we get a bit more experimentation and don't just kind of stick with, with what's there. I That hasn't really been Greg Berhalter in the past, so I don't have as big of a fear about that being the case now. Yeah, I agree with every single word you just said, Taylor. All right, well, that works. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. So that is one of my semi-big takeaways from these two friendlies. Joe, I want to hear some from you. But first, I feel like we should hear from today's sponsor. Let's talk about Artifact. Artifact uh, have been a sponsor for a long time on the Total Soccer Show. You've heard us talk about them in a variety of different ways. Joe, I think you and I have not discussed Artifact on the show. So I leave it to you to explain Artifact to people who are unfamiliar. Artifact is really cool. Are you kidding me? Like, I have not had the chance to talk about this with you, but it is... It's really neat. And when I heard George Crecy was making this thing, I got excited. Yeah, it was sad he was leading athletic soccer, but it, it's cool, right? It's really cool. They make personalized podcasts. Mm-hmm. They make things in just stories and they, they add in all the professional elements and touches that you would want in a high quality podcast. But it's really personal, Taylor. 
Yes, it is. Yeah, I, I've talked about this before. I will probably continue to talk about it. But uh, my wife and I had planned to do a sort of parenting road trip before we had our first child to talk to different people who've had kids or who we know have had kids and we've seen how they raise them and we like the way they raise them. That hasn't been possible with COVID and the pandemic. So we've used Artifact to get their stories, to get some of those kind of experiences recorded. And now we can listen to them and hopefully learn from them and hopefully learn from the mistakes as well as the successes. <laughs> I like that. I like how you pinpointed specific people that you wanted to yeah. talk to because yeah. uh, some lessons are better to be learned and others are better left unlearned. Yes. Well said, sir. Well said. But yes, you can commission an artifact about anything you want. It could be this game if you want. I mean, you're kind of listening to us do a version of an artifact <laughs> about this one. Uh, but there are many other topics. You could do one for your parents ahead of their anniversary. You could do one for your your partner, your significant other for an, uh, an anniversary of your own. Uh, but Joe, if people did want to uh, commission an artifact, how could they do that and do they have to pay full price they don't so right now the athletic is giving away a free artifact all you need to do is go to www.heyartifact.com slash athletic contest he's throwing the w's what, folks he's throwing the right. w's the full url i didn't add the <laughs> http colon but we'll we'll leave that for another day all you got to do is go to that uh, go to that address online and tell us what you'd like to make an artifact about then at that point they're going to draw a random winner to do a single interview artifact about whatever you want. Taylor, that's a pretty darn good offer. Yeah, that's so that's the artifact contest where if they're just trying to come up with kind of different things it could be used for, they want to crowdsource, but they want to reward the crowd for being that source. But if you don't want to take that risk, if you don't want to uh, leave it to random fate, then you could go to heyartifact.com simply. And when you go to commission one of your own, you can use the promo code TSS to get $40 off your first artifact. Again, that's heyartifact.com. Uh, and then the promo code is TSS for $40 off. Or you could go to heyartifact.com slash athletic contest. I left out the W's there, uh, but you could do that one to potentially win an artifact. Uh, but either way, we encourage you to use Artifact, and we appreciate them for sponsoring today's episode. Joe, who else is sponsoring our show today? Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's show is sponsored by LinkedIn. Taylor, have you ever, have you ever heard of LinkedIn? I have heard of LinkedIn. I, as I've said before, I don't think I've updated my LinkedIn since maybe <laughs> 2013 or thereabouts. I'm pretty sure it says I still work for another company and I have been mocked several times over for my profile picture. Well, we'll work on that maybe. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not. That. I don't yeah, know. It's a fine. nice, it's a nice relic from the past as well. So maybe, mm -hmm. maybe the nostalgic value is there. But if you're a small business, your needs are probably evolving right now. Mm -hmm. Even with the current uncertainty, having the right people on your team is, is like the feeling of warmth being wrapped up in a blanket. So when your business is ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn jobs can help you by matching your role with qualified candidates so that you can find that right person quickly. That's right. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more with more than 706 million members worldwide. I love that they've gone with 706. Not just more than 700, but more than 706 million members worldwide. 
and they make it really easy both for you to put your resume on to find a job, but then also to post a job uh, if you have that availability because you can look for specific criteria, specific things you definitely need. Some of the lesser important ones you can maybe not focus on as much, but it allows you to sort of streamline the process and it does the same for job applicants. Joe, have you ever had to use LinkedIn? I know, I know you're uh, you're you're relatively young. I'm not going to throw you under the bus and say super young, but I'll say relatively young. So I'm wondering if you've had to utilize LinkedIn yet. I have had to utilize LinkedIn at certain times in my life. And I will tell you, it is really easy to use. Honestly, it's very simple. It's very streamlined. Updating your profile, Taylor, hint, hint, is really not, (laughs) it's really not difficult, everybody. It's very easy and it makes it easy for businesses to find you. You'll get email notifications right to your email if you want them. The whole process is simple and straightforward and I'm a fan. That's good. I should add, I haven't updated mine because I've just been doing this same show since around (laughs) that same time. So I'm aware that other people jump around a bit more, change things up, uh, have different approaches to their careers. And again, that's where LinkedIn can help if you want a more uh, more variety in your life. When your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn jobs. You can pay what you want and get your first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash soccer. Again, that's linkedin.com slash soccer to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring this episode. Joe, I've talked about some center back concerns. What are some of your takeaways? I I feel like since we started negative, maybe let's go positive. Let's talk positive trends or takeaways from these two games. You got it. Yeah, I want to talk about the number nine position and how we saw that evolve or, or maybe not evolve from the Wales game over to this game against Panama. That sounds good to me. I'm ready. I'm ready for you to do that. Okay, I will take it away. So so against Wales, we saw Sebastian Legette playing as the number nine. We saw him starting up top and dropping in a lot. Things got messy, to put it lightly. That was the general theme, the attacking theme from the from the Wales game. Against Panama, we saw Nicholas Giochini, Joachini. There it is. Man, I'm still working on it. It's hard, everybody. man. It's hard. I keep doing it too. I have to write it down phonetically. Yeah, I might I might steal that trick. So so we saw Joachini dropping in. And doing a similar job, not yep. the exact same job, but a similar job to what Sebastian Legette did. And I would argue, not just because of Joaquini's work, but because of the rest of the structure around him, I would say that the overall attacking look from the United States was more cohesive and it worked a little bit better in this game against Wales, excuse me, in this game against mm-hmm. Panama, as opposed to that game against Wales. The balance, Taylor, the balance was a lot better. When when Joaquini dropped in, the other players around him, or at least an other player around him, would make a line-breaking run in behind Panama's back line. When Joaquini started higher and stayed higher to lead the line, someone else would drop into that space. Gio Reyna would drop into that space underneath the striker, or Weston McKenney would push forward into that space. Overall, the idea was the same. I want to be clear about that. And Greg Berhalter said this after the game. He said, he, he at least alluded to the fact that in buildup, he still wanted the number nine to drop deeper, and he occasionally wanted that number nine to stretch the back line. That was the same idea as, as Sebastian Legette was given before the last game, and the same idea that Jesus Ferreira was given in February against Costa Rica. But I think in this game, the communication was better, the rotations were better, the movement was better, and it all had a much better balance to it, stemming from that number nine spot. So I have a couple a couple points that I wanted to discuss here. The first one in our review, and then on Twitter, I posted that photo of uh, Legette when he was playing in that role. He has Serginho Dest making a run down the right hand side. Uh, he does not play it; instead, he drops it back to Weston McKinney. My argument on the show uh, was that that was him, maybe not wanting to gamble because maybe the United States had 
prioritized not conceding possession when the fullbacks were committed forward. Some people did respond to that saying like, no, this is kind of a legit thing. He does this with the Galaxy 2. He sometimes doesn't want to make that risky pass. From from like the moments that I, I don't want to bias you, I'm just going to leave it there. I'm going to ask you: Did you see that same hesitancy from Joaquini? Did you see him not wanting to make those big passes, but instead playing it simple, or did you see deviation in his game? There was a little bit more aggression from Joaquini yeah. in his passing. I don't think it was consistent, but there were flashes of that that willingness to drop in and then. As he turns or, or, or sort of get the ball, then turn and then pass the ball forward and, and play the ball into someone who is making that line breaking run in behind the back line. Sebastian Legette, I think, against Wales took too many touches too often. Agreed. And that contributed to the congestion in the attack. But with Joaquini, yes, he took too many touches sometimes, but overall, or at least in specific moments, he was cleaner and he was faster and allowed the players around him to be getting the ball in those spaces behind the back line. So I agree with you uh, on the idea that it was also like other people making better runs and having better movement. It definitely gave Joaquini better opportunities to to look better. A lot of betters in there. But I, I also saw a couple individual things that made me very happy. And with Joaquini, one of those was that you would see him drop in in that same way that we saw from Legette, where he would he would come central, he would try to find a pocket of space to get that ball. Sometimes he turns, sometimes he spreads it wide, sometimes he drops it. But oftentimes he doesn't get that ball played in right away. And I, not to say Legette was just standing if the ball didn't come in, but I think there wasn't as much versatility to what he was trying to do. If the ball didn't come in, I felt like he would sort of maybe shuttle from side to side, open up a little bit, but for the most part either stayed in that area or vacated that area by moving towards the U.S.'s center backs and away from the attack. I think the idea there was that, well, then somebody else will fill in and then I'll take their place and we'll kind of keep those patterns going. But instead what ended up happening is he would basically come square next to Tyler Adams or whomever, and now you have this big space in the middle. Joaquini, for his part that I saw today, would show, and if the ball wasn't on, you would see him backpedal. He would sort of drop two yards or move two yards closer to Panama's goal, bump into somebody, and then kind of use them to create separation and move back in there. And I felt like he kept trying those runs and trying different things to keep trying to find space. And I thought that variety in his movement caused a lot of problems for Panama. And then I also thought his direct attacking runs were a big difference, that when the United States would get down the channels, would get to the end line and would try to kind of center it or play those low-driven balls in there, Joaquini was just doing a better job of making sure that he got into the right position. Obviously, he gets two goals. That exemplifies that. But even there's one point, uh, one that you spotlighted on Twitter, I think, Joe, near the end of the first half, when he plays the ball out wide, then continues his run forward, gets a loose ball and draws a free kick. I'll, I, I welcome you to talk more about that one in more detail. But that one was another one for me where it was like, see, he's making runs, he's linking up play, but then he's still trying to score goals. He was ticking a lot of boxes for me in this game. He did tick those boxes in a way I think Sebastian Legette didn't. And I, I want to be clear, I think the roles that those two guys played were more similar than they were dissimilar. But Joaquini still has the underlying tendencies and habits of a more standard number nine, a guy who's going to lead the line and stretch the back line at times. And and in that moment you talked about just a second ago, Taylor, where Joaquini gets the ball and then he sprays it wide and then he goes forward to follow the play, Sebastian Legette would do things similar to that. But Joaquini's intensity and his drive to get forward as a more athletic player is is just straight up better than Sebastian Legette's ability to get forward. That's that's the difference between those two players. So there's that moment. And then I want to even shine a light on a, on a moment earlier on in the first half. 
It's the U.S.'s, I would argue, their most beautiful chance of the game, if not their best mm-hmm. chance. It's in the seventh minute, and it yep. starts with Matt Miazga on the ball, and he plays it forward to Weston McKenney, who then turns and plays the ball wide to Reggie Cannon, who's open because the ball side winger has pinned the opposing fullback inside, which is something that I mentioned earlier. Reggie Cannon is on the ball at this point. Then he plays a low-bending cross into the box, and Ulianas arrives from the opposite side, meets the ball in the middle, and shoots it first time. The shot goes wide, but Yanez is in space in the box because, number one, he makes a great run. Yep. But number two, because Joachini has made that hard direct run forward and taken the opposing defenders inside the box away. He's driven them down and forced them to follow him, creating space for Ulianas inside the box. That run and that movement, or at least the purpose and speed of that run and that move from Joachini, I don't think we would have seen from Sebastian Legette. No, I don't think so either. And I think that's because probably probably because maybe there's a little bit more time for Joachini. He could learn from some of Legette's mistakes, but it is also a relatively new position for Sebastian Legette, maybe one slightly more familiar with Joachini. I think scoring goals is certainly a thing he's familiar with. And I think it's easy to look at those two goals in a highlight reel and think like, oh, he's kind of on the end of one that gets spilled. And then he's in a fortunate position to kind of crash the goal to put in the, the second one. But I would argue both of those, especially the first one, are are more challenging than you would expect, but also I think do a good job of maybe transitioning us into another thing that maybe we can talk about. But I think it's the United States pressing and like really causing Panama a lot of problems. It was really fun to see the U.S. make another team uncomfortable when they were on the ball. It usually tends to be the other way around. And here, the United States, with the press, force the turnover. They go at Panama very swiftly. It's a good shot, I would argue, from Ulianez. But if you watch as the shot's being taken, Joachini is not sprinting towards the near post. He's not anticipating a cross that obviously was never going to be crossed or a pass that was never going to be passed. He's not bringing defenders towards Yanez. If anything, he's pulling them away. But he's still very much up on his toes. He's ready to react. And he makes little adjustments so that he's in a very good position to just smash that loose ball home, which he does. And I think his awareness and kind of goal-scoring presence was very, very important in that moment. But I think so, too, was the U.S.'s press. And that's my way of saying, Joe, do do you feel like we can just go ahead and say the United States, at least when it comes to teams trying to build out, are a a pressing team at this point? Yeah, it's time. The the shift has happened. Between that, that buttery smooth 4-4-2 block and the <laughs> that, actually that sounds too good. I want to be does. clear. I was like, Are that you being makes ironic? me hungry. Yeah. That makes yeah. me hungry and want Thanksgiving to happen. But no, <laughs> uh, buttery in a bad way. Like you could you mm-hmm. could put a knife through it and it would go through really easily. So not not the good soccer kind of butter. The, and we'll move past it. <laughs> not not we moved on from the 4-4-2 block and into a yeah. more aggressive. 4-3-3, 4-4-2, diamond press. But also, in, in the shift that was most notable to me in this game was not necessarily the the structured high press, but was more the slightly more scattered counter-pressing that the U.S. would do. Yeah. Any time, or at least most of the time when they lost the ball, they would swarm. Or, or Weston McKinney would swarm the ball. Or Eunice Musa would step to the ball and, and body someone and win it back. The U.S. did that over and over and over again, Taylor. On, on my rewatch in this game, I started really paying attention to counterpressing about the 13th minute in the first half. And I counted at least seven specific moments where the U.S. pressed hard, won the ball back, and either created a chance or at least regained possession. And I know I missed some in the first half, and I know I missed a lot in the second half. The U.S. is now a pressing and counterpressing team, and it seems to be working for them. 
So if we have anybody like new new to U.S. soccer, new to soccer, or like not as into the terminology we're talking about, what, what is the difference, briefly, Joe, between pressing and counter-pressing? Absolutely. So pressing is, imagine the other team has the ball on a goal kick, right? They're in possession of the ball. So you're back defending. But instead of sitting back and defending, pressing and specifically high pressing is when you extend your lines up the field and you go and meet the ball where it is. You go and step your players forward to try to pin the opposition back and to win the ball high up the field. That's pressing. That's high pressing. Counter pressing, on the other hand, is pressing a counterattack. So if the U.S. lost the ball, and they did plenty of times in this game, just like in every other soccer game, when you lose the ball, counterpressing is, is not allowing the opposition to counterattack right by you. It's, it's stepping forward and collapsing on the ball right after you lose it to win it back so quickly and then recreate an attack of your own. So it's pressing, pressing is, is pressing from a defensive standpoint and counter, counterpressing is almost more offensive pressing after you've lost possession. So I saw the United States doing a lot more of this in this game. I agree with you. I saw both forms of it, and I think the counterpressing especially was was really exciting because I think there are some things the United States has not had or not had in the abundance it needs to be able to pull this off in the past, and I think it has them now. So when the United States would win the ball back, it's not as reliant on, okay, now you go here and you go here. It's not the sort of everybody has to be in the exact right like positions to then move and interchange. I think the technical ability and talent is there that when the United States was winning it back, they were driving at people. And maybe there was going to be Sergio Des taking somebody on and trying to get by them. Maybe it was going to be a quick one too. Maybe it would be slowing it down and possessing, but then finding a way through like very quickly. But I thought the variety in the way – that the United States attacked when counterpressing, like once they won the ball back, that made me really excited just because you could see the sort of the the high stakes gambling that was being uh, sort of applied to this one in terms of like, it's a little risky and sometimes they didn't get it right. Um, when they didn't get it right, when say you had Musa and McKenney try to close down somebody in the middle and he would turn, which did happen once or twice, they got split a big reason why nothing went from there is because you have in that number six spot, Tyler Adams, who is so mobile and versatile that on a number of occasions, at least twice, once in the first half, once in the second, our two more attack-minded midfielders, again, Moose and McKinney, would step to that central midfielder as he got the ball, but they're both coming from an angle, and he would just sort of turn 180 degrees and go the other way, and now you basically have those players completely bypassed. It's the one thing you're not supposed to allow to happen, and that and yet, in both of those instances, Tyler Adams covers 15, 20 yards and is there to slow it down or win the ball back or, I think, concede a foul. But for the most part, I felt like his versatility was so important to the United States pressing. I, I don't really know who else could do that if Tyler Adams isn't able to. Yeah, I, I think Berhalter has had to shift from that four four two mid-block into the more aggressive, high-pressing, counter-pressing setup. I, I think his, his hand has been forced no longer now does he have to cover from Michael Bradley and sitting deeper in that midfield lower block. Mm-hmm. Now he can let his guys loose. It would be almost criminal to not press aggressively when you have Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney, and Eunice Musa, and then the other guys that the U.S. have coming up in this player pool, like Paxton Pomacal, like Brendan Aronson. There are aggressive defensive players in this group, in this midfield group, and unleashing them and having them sit deeper in a block feels like a really bad decision, and it, it's a good thing because Berhalter has has clearly seen that or come to the same conclusion in a different way. Regardless, we're seeing the U.S. now press more aggressively, yep. and that was a huge part of, of why they smothered Panama in the first half and why they scored those first three goals. I agree. 
I would now like to have a conversation about Michael Bradley for a moment that I do not <laughs> want to. I'm saying it this way in a very formal way because I don't want this to come across as hot takey. I don't want to be like, oh, so what do we think of Michael Bradley? He's bad now, right? Like that's, that's, that's an oversimplification. That's not what we want to do. And I would say like in the same way that I said, if Tim Ream is involved, I think there's a reason for it. I think if we do see Michael Bradley to continue to be involved going forward, again, I'm assuming there's a reason for that. But I would say at this point, it feels like it requires a change in the way the United States wants to play. I just, I don't think you can do this. I don't think you can press the way they did and have a number six who can't cover the ground like Tyler Adams can. Michael Bradley still offers you a decent amount, but not in the way that the United States are currently trying to play. So if we see him again, are you with me that it would require them doing something fundamentally different than what we've seen them do in these two friendlies? It would require a reversion back to where we saw Berhalter the things we saw Berhalter doing at the start of his tenure. It would require a deeper defensive setup. It would require the number six role offensively even being being different than it is now for Tyler Adams. Yeah, Taylor, I'm 100% with you. The role has changed. And Michael Bradley, between his knees and his lack of mobility that we're seeing with Toronto FC right now, and we have seen this season, between that and the the tactical evolution that has taken place under Berhalter throughout his tenure leading to this game, Things would have to be very different, and I don't think that's likely to happen. It's just – it's such a weird thing because Daryl and I like have been big Michael Bradley defenders. I, I still will be. I, I really like Michael Bradley. I think he's been amazing for the national team and for soccer in this country. Uh, roll your eyes if you want to, listeners, but that's how I feel. And it's strange then to have, like, leading into this camp, sort of just assumed that, like, yeah, it's still going to be like Tyler Adams and Michael Bradley in there. They're like, maybe he'll try to find a way to get them in there together. And coming out of this one, maybe that was just because so much time has passed and I don't have the familiarity I did in, say, February. But coming out of this camp, I just think, like, yeah, no. <laughs> like, like, if we see Michael Bradley in there, it means that he's probably doing a different role or is functioning in a different way. And the United States are set up in a unique way to sort of like uh, play upon his strengths and yet not like allow for his vulnerabilities to become problematic. But I just, I don't see a scenario in which we see him just doing this Tyler Adams job. And then we try to do the same stuff. That's my long winded way, way of saying, I won't be sad if we see Michael Bradley with a national team again, I will be sad if we see him trying to do these same things, because at this point I feel like we can confidently say that's not a thing he's going to be able to do. It almost seems to me like Michael Bradley has been overtaken by Jackson Ewell and by Johnny Cardoso in his position, in his yep. type of position. Uh, when I say that, I mean you've got the Tyler Adams path, which is only only populated by Tyler Adams. No one can play this number six spot in the U.S. pool like Tyler Adams does. Right. Highly mobile, able to get everywhere defensively and connect some things offensively but overall still not a, not a great passer of the ball, at least not a great creator when he has the ball. Then the other path for that number six spot is the, the I'm going to sit deeper, I might drop between the center backs, I can ping those diagonal balls out to the wings, and defensively I'm going to need some cover. To me, from what I've seen of Jackson Ewell with San Jose, he has more defensive bite than Michael Bradley, but not anywhere near the defensive bite that Tyler Adams does. Johnny right. Cardoso seems, Mike, seems like a much more rigid guy. His legs are long, he looks a little awkward to me in his movement good passer of the ball, able to create some things offensively. There are two pathways, I think, is the reality right now. And Michael Bradley, I don't think, is even at the top of his own number six positional profile. So this is where I then ask you, 
how good do you think Tyler Adams is? And it's more of a specific question than the broadness of that one would imply. But if, say, Tyler Adams does get hurt and, and the United States has, has a game to play, if it's a friendly or competitive or whatever, do you, would you like to see somebody else as the deputy to Tyler Adams? Like, is there a player you think could do that, an approximation of what Tyler Adams does? Or do you think it does require a different look to the team because only Tyler Adams can do that job? I know I just said we shouldn't leash up Eunice Musa and Weston McKennie and Tyler Adams. We should let them free and let them roam. But I think maybe having a slightly more reserved Eunice Musa as that number six would work. Okay. If you can, if you can tame him slightly and not have him make so many of those awesome line breaking runs out of midfield and, and have him not drive forward so much and take so many risks. He has composure on the ball. He has speed, athleticism, great passing ability, or at least decent passing ability. I think he would fit well as at number six. Again, if you can have him calm down a little bit, like we need Weston McKinney sometimes to calm down hmm. and settle and just take a half a breath before doing something. Yunus Musa at the six, if he could do that, would be a great Tyler Adams deputy. At least I think that would be the case. So we've talked a little bit about Yunus Musa. We talked a little bit a little bit about Weston McKinney and that midfield. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We're going to talk more about that midfield in a moment, but first, let's talk about today's sponsor, Fubo. Are you sick of cable? Well, we are too, or at least I was, which is why I canceled my cable. I did switch to Fubo TV, and it is where I watch the majority of my live sports, especially when it comes to national team games, because you have the FS1 option, as I did today. You also have the TUDNA option, which I used for the replay. Uh, again, because they don't pipe in the crowd noise as much or at all, so you can hear a little bit more what's going on on the field, but it just gives you the variety and Fubo also allows you to get other great programming. It's how my wife and I paid attention to the election to the extent we wanted to. And it's how we pay attention to the Cooligans because they tend to pop up there pretty frequently. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. I I can't miss. You can't miss the Cooligans on Fubo. It really (laughs) is the way that I watch a lot of stuff too, Taylor, to be honest with you. I watched this national team game and the one against Wales on Fubo. I watch almost all of my soccer, if not all of my soccer, which is a lot to be very clear. On Fubo. I mean, it's got pretty much everything that you could ever ask for all in one place. That's right. And it's only $65 a month to watch many of the same channels, but then you're not paying for DVR. You're not paying for installation. Uh, you get 100 channels, cloud DVR, no hidden fees. You can stream your shows on your TV or any smart device, which is true. Uh, when I have to like go do something while I'm watching a game, I can switch it to the phone or the iPad or even the laptop if need be. Uh, so you've got a variety of streaming options there. It is a wonderful service and it allows you to watch uh, many wonderful sports. Joe, if people would like to try Fubo for themselves, how can they do it? Yeah, so right now, Fubo TV is offering listeners a free trial and 15% off your first month. And you can find that deal by going to FuboTV.com slash TSS. No contracts, and you can cancel anytime. So again, that's FuboTV.com slash TSS for 15% off your first month and a free trial. That's FuboTV.com slash TSS. Thank you very much to Fubo for sponsoring today's episode of the... This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. 
Head over to MichelobeUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, thank you very much to Credible for sponsoring today's episode of the Total Soccer Show. Credible.com is an online marketplace that allows borrowers with student loan debt to see refinancing rates across a variety of lenders. There has been much conversation, at least online, about student uh, student loan forgiveness and should we? I think we should. But uh, until that becomes a reality, you can utilize the services at Credible to help you make your student loan that much more manageable, make that debt that much more uh, hand handleable? Why not? Let's go with that word. <laughs> I think it works. Taylor, if you've got student loan debt mm-hmm. or if anyone else out there has student loan debt, you can benefit from Credible. There are lots of benefits to refinancing your student loans, including having a lower rate could save your interest, save your interest rates, or lower your monthly payment, which means more money in your pocket. You can go debt-free faster. You can consolidate all of your student loan bills in one place. And then on top of all those things, serious peace of mm-hmm. mind. Getting rid of your debt faster means your mind is going to be at peace much quicker. Credible customers have given awesome reviews about how much better their financial lives have been after refinancing. And they allow you to see actual pre-qualified rates from multiple lenders, whereas with some online marketplaces, you'll get ranges of rates or ballpark estimates. Uh, And it only takes a couple of minutes to check rates, and checking rates does not impact your credit, emphasizing does not impact your credit. They're so confident they have the best rates that they'll give you $200 if you close a loan with a better rate elsewhere. They will never sell your data, so you won't receive spam and phone calls from dozens of lenders. Please visit Credible.com slash T-S-S, that's C-R-E-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash T-S-S, and when you refinance your student loans via Credible, they'll give you a $200 gift card. All you got to do is fill in a few pieces of info to check what rates you're eligible for. Again, that's Credible.com slash T-S-S, refinance your student loans and start saving. Message from Credible Operations, Inc., not available in all states. Terms and conditions apply. Visit Credible.com slash TSS for details. Thank you very much to Credible for sponsoring this episode of the Total Soccer Show. Joe, let's get back to reviewing USA 6 Panama 2. We talked about the midfield. We started talking about the midfield. My question for you is, as long as everybody agrees to it and everybody stays playing for the national team, is this our starting midfield going forward? Oh, yeah. I mean, what do you think? Because I think (laughs) it definitely is. I think so. I just the combination. Oh, go ahead. I, go ahead. I just, I just can't. I can't really. Again, this is another one similar to the Bradley thing, where I had this idea of like Yunus Musa will come in. I think you go back and listen to our preview, and it was like, oh, he'll get some minutes. He probably won't start. Maybe he starts the second game. But it's exciting to see him in there, and we'll see what happens coming out of this one. I do think he'll end up playing for the United States. I think he enjoyed himself, and I think he probably wouldn't have come into this camp if he weren't already leaning one way. But I think coming out of it with the games going the way they did, the camaraderie we saw, but also. The ver- like the versatility he brings, he can do so many different things on the ball. He can go at people, he can dribble, he can pass short, he can pass long. He doesn't really seem to panic. He can ride challenges. He can handle the concacafery when those moments occur, which they did in this game. I have come out of this one thinking like, yep, that's definitely our starting midfield unless something horrible happens. He was way better than I expected him to be. Yep, right. He I was agree. he was night not night and day different because he was still he showed flashes with Valencia. Mm-hmm. But it shows the difference that uh, that him playing in apparently a more natural position inside instead of outside has had on him and has had on his performance. So credit to Greg Berhalter and his staff for recognizing that he should be played as a central midfielder instead of a right midfielder. That That's part of the difference. And then also playing with good players. Valencia is not a very good La Liga team right now. They're not doing particularly well or at least consistently well. 
having some talented guys around him, having Weston McKinney, who can go forward with him, having Uli Giannis, who's a really skilled, talented winger, having Gio Reyna, or having any one of these young, talented, attacking guys for the United States surrounding him, I think those two factors, his position and the players around him, made him look really good in this game, on top of, obviously, his his very strong talent. Yeah. And this this may sound like a backhanded compliment. I don't mean for it to be, but there's there's a weird thing about when he gets up to full speed with the ball, particularly that he sort of looks like he's out of control, and he's not. It's the way he runs, like he has a long legged, leaning back sort of style. That on a couple different occasions in this game, I think defenders thought like, oh, he's miscontrolled. That ball's way too far out in front. Similar to what we talked about with Miazga for Panama's second, that a couple different times defenders would sort of step to it like, oh, I've got this, no problem. It's a clean interception. And then he would beat them to it, and not just beat them to it, but beat them to it by a couple seconds, by a couple yards. Like, it, it's it's a strange thing that keeps causing problems. It's also why he ends up getting clipped a lot of the time, because I think players think they'll beat him to a ball, and then he very much beats them, and they end up only getting his, like, plant foot as he runs past them. And it's just little moments like that that I, I found myself like watching and watching again because he just brings this new level to that midfield, this new thing that we haven't had. It's another asset to have in the tool belt. And I, I come away from it being very excited about him, somehow more excited about Weston McKinney. Uh, but I don't want to take us there before you have the opportunity to say anything else you wanted to about Eunice Musa, America's greatest midfielder, except for Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams. <laughs> One more thing for me on Musa. There was a play in this game, I think it was in the first half, I'll go back and find it at some point, where the U.S. is is pressing. They're in their mm-hmm. high press, so they've got their lines forward. They're in that 4-3-3, 4-4-2 diamond shape. And in that shape, we've talked about it before, Taylor, you need those those lateral central midfielders, which was Weston McKinney and Eunice Musa in this game. You need those guys to be able to cover a lot of ground. They need mm-hmm. to be able to step wide if the ball comes over to their side. In this moment that I'm thinking about and that I'm visualizing in my head, Panama play the ball over to Musa's side, and Musa covers so much ground that he almost overruns the pass. It's like the pass could have been 10 yards out of bounds, and he still could have gotten there. That ability in that moment, it it didn't mean anything in terms of the game, but it illustrates how mobile he is and how dangerous he is in a defensive capacity— Yunus Musa is very good at soccer. <laughs> Since you've talked about uh, his defensive capacity, I want to talk about his attacking play one more time because we we kind of had a feeling heading into this one that Panama would be a bit more defensive. They would sit back and try to cause problems for the United States. I think that's fair to say, right, Joe? Absolutely. So with that, then, what I, what I was paying attention to was how does the United States find a way through? Obviously, they couldn't against Wales. They had some chances. They didn't take them that cleanly. What do they do this time? And I think we saw some overlaps and some combinations out wide, which we were expecting. I think we saw a few more crosses, especially when Sebastian Soto comes in, and we'll talk about him in a little bit. Uh, I do think you saw the United States trying to kind of complete short passes on one side and then big switches to usually Serginho Des standing on the left touch line, and then he could go uh, at the defense from there. But also, you have to have individual moments. You have to have people willing to turn and go at the defense. I don't think we saw as much of that against Wales. I think Greg Berhalter talked about that, similar to what we already talked about with him wanting... uh, Who did he want to be more involved in their... Oh, Serginho Dest, he wanted them taking people on. Uh, But in this one, in the lead-up to the free kick that Gio Reyna ends up scoring, Yunus Musa kind of gets the ball, turns, and realizes he's got maybe 15 yards ahead of him, and he attacks that space, he takes somebody on, he gets by them, and then he draws that foul. 
foul. But in a, like, I feel like there's other players who would have slowed it down and tried to find some passes and let's retain possession and work it around and see what happens. And you have to have that little change in the way you're approaching because if you're just moving the ball slowly, the defense can adjust and now they know you're going to move slow. If it's just built on one side, big switch to the other, you can account for that as well. But then when you throw in the individual sort of moments of creativity of why not just try stuff, I think he can do that as well. So there's just so many different things in his arsenal that I really wasn't aware were going to be there. And now I am. And I'm literally rubbing my hands together without meaning to as I'm talking. I love that, Taylor. I love as well that dribbling ability and his willingness to drive forward with the ball. That's not something we see from a lot of other players in the pool. Weston McKenney honestly might be the only other active member of that that driving forward with the ball out of midfield club because he also really likes to do that. Yep. I say that as well because I know you want to talk about Weston McKenney. And here really is your platform to do that, sir. Uh, so I, I do think – I tweeted that these were probably the two best games we've seen from him in the national team or at least two back-to-back. But I would go so far as to say for me this was his most impressive game ever in a national team jersey. He's scored other goals. He's had a hat trick. He's He's been a big-time performer in moments. And I think today tonight you could easily put together a low-light reel, not a highlight reel, but you could put together the moments of like, oh, that could have been better. Oh, he's overcommits there. Oh, that's a bad pass out of bounds. But for all of that, there's always going to be moments of weakness. I thought I saw so much in his game that we've already come to expect from him. There's the fight. There's the grit. There's the leadership. There's kind of coaching when he needs to. There's doing what he's asked to do when he needs to. But then there were just other little things like there's uh, incisive passes. There's sort of you think he's going to go one way and then he disguises the pass going the opposite. He'll take people on both like when he's within 30 yards of the goal, but when he's within 30 yards of his own goal, he's not afraid to try to dribble out. But I also don't feel like we saw those moments of like, oh, now he's feeling himself and he tries to like turn and go in the same fluid motion and misses the ball. And now Panama have an attacking chance like those what those fluctuations. I didn't see as many big ones between, oh, that was really good. Oh, but that was really bad. There were some negative moments, but for the most part, I felt like it was like, oh, that was good. Oh, that was a good decision. Oh, he doesn't get involved there, but instead he's dealing with that. Like, I think I just kept seeing little things from him that were positive in a way that I haven't seen as comprehensively in the past. I've, I've in the past been critical of Weston McKinney, and I will continue to be critical in a, in a fair way, I think, in an analytical way. He hasn't always been that consistent presence in midfield. But in this window, in this November international window, he has been. He's been an asset on both sides of the ball. Super great with his counterpressing, really active and mobile defensively, and then offensively an asset. He's He's got a few tricks in his bag, but he's also been solid. He's, his off-ball movement even has been really important, and I think it was maybe more so in this game than it was against Wales. McKenney was the guy making a lot of those line-breaking runs to to provide space for Gio Reyna between the lines or to give Joe Akini the opportunity to drop into a pocket of space off of the back line. McKenney was bringing balance in this midfield and in this attack out of that central midfield spot that Berhalter has him in. I thought just about everything in this game he did well. Some of the passing was sloppy in the second half. McKenney was not the only culprit for that particular mm-hmm. bit of sloppy passing. But overall, Weston McKenney in this game, in this window has been excellent. I think it was that clip that you posted when uh, Joachini drops in and then plays the ball to an overlapping Reggie Cannon. Like that, I think it's this one where everything is sort of set up for that to occur, but it still requires the inciting incident. And Weston McKinney, I think, has one where he like receives the ball with his back to goal and sort of shapes like he's going to turn to his right. And then while he's 
sort of turning to his right, plays it with his right foot behind him to his left. And it completely throws off the whole Panama team. But that's how you get those extra maybe yard or two of space, that extra half second. And then you have bing, bing, bing. Like you exploit that uh, that half second, that becomes a full second. And then you exploit that second, it becomes two seconds. And that's how you create opportunities. And I thought he was so good about playing quickly when he needed to, when there was something that was on, but slowing it down when the United States needed that to happen, which it did in the first half. When they go to one nil down, they start getting a little bit panicky. They start going direct. And I think that Panama, they have a free kick. Like if they hit that one on frame, who knows what happens? They have a couple other opportunities. And Weston McKinney is big in, in getting the ball, slowing it down, places it to Tyler Adams, who tells people to slow it down. And the United States sort of reestablish their dominance. And then we know how it goes. But I thought from start to finish in this game, I just thought he was really impressive in a midfield in which every single person was very impressive. Can I add two quick thoughts on Weston McKinney? Taylor? Please. Okay. Thought number one is, or I guess both of these thoughts are, are things I want to see from him going forward because yeah, I think he had a great window, but there are things that he still needs to improve or things that he needs to prove yeah. to, to national team fans and to this group of players and, and Greg Berhalter. Number one is defensive awareness. In these two games, we have not seen the U.S. have to sit back in a defensive block this is at, true. almost at all. We did a little bit in this Panama game, a little bit against Wales, but generally, I think back to the game against Mexico. I believe it was the Gold Cup final. Weston McKinney is not aware defensively, and that leads to Jonah Dos Santos scoring that game-winning goal in a game, I think, that ended one to nothing. That's one thing that I want to see from Weston McKinney. Get his head on a swivel, have him be an active, proactive defender as much as possible. Thing number two, then, is is his, his not hot-headedness, because he seems like a very cool presence on the field. But sometimes, and we saw it in the second half when he gets the yellow card, mm-hmm. I think it's a little rash. And that's a very small sample size, this yellow card that I'm thinking of. He slides in pretty hard. Stu Holden was more yeah. or less convinced it should have been a red. I'm not sure I disagree with that assessment. I disagree with him thing. only because I have to jump in just to say Stu Holden. Like I agree with a lot of what he said until he said at the end, like, if that's higher, it's a red card, which to me is like the the joke of the person being like, if that bullet had been eight feet over and two <laughs> feet up, it would have hit me in the heart. It's like, well, it wasn't. So being like, if it had been higher, it would have been a red. It's like, right. And it wasn't. So it was a yellow. I know what you mean. It's a pretty aggressive tackle. The slow-mo looks even worse. If you watch it again in full speed, I think it's basically he slides in where he thinks the player is going to be and just misjudges it. Similar to what Matt Miazga does, except Matt Miazga doesn't go to ground. Maybe he should have. Uh, but yeah, I think think there was a, that was a sort of moment of like, ooh, a little reckless, maybe a little more reckless than I would have liked in that one. I mean, Taylor, if, if Weston McKinney had it slid two feet into the guy's head, that would have been a red card. I don't think we should really be arguing about that. That this seems like true. fact. If he had, generally, if he had ninja kicked him in the chest, yes, it would have been a red card. <laughs> I think you, me, and Stu would all be on the same page with that one. Okay. But if we set that aside, I think those two points, defensive awareness and occasionally yeah. more measured play – are important, but overall, Weston McKenney's growth into a consistent, semi-creative, yeah. very well-rounded offensive player in the center of midfield for the U.S. is a really great thing. And 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 you're absolutely right. Uh, you're right to to kind of point that out because, as I said earlier, he was one of those players who sometimes would, especially as the game goes on, it's very tiring to press when you haven't had a ton of camp. You might maybe aren't as ready for it, and he plays a lot of minutes in this camp, but. There are moments when I think he's trying to close down distance that maybe he would have been 
five yards closer to in the first half, but in the second is is not. And so now he's having to make a few more desperation plays. He's maybe having to dive into stuff, and that is when he started to get turn and split. So maybe that is better fitness. Maybe that is like you sub him out earlier. Maybe you like vary that approach a little bit. But I think you're right to say that the defensive – the puzzle, maybe not a problem, but the potential defensive puzzle is one to keep an eye on. And that's just not something we've seen from the U.S. in the last couple of games. And even thinking back to that game against Costa Rica, the U.S. hasn't played high-powered attacking opponents. I mean they're, they just haven't been on the schedule. So we haven't seen that defensive block. We've seen the U.S. in a lot of other phases of play. We've seen them with possession. That's phase number one. We've seen them counter-pressing, phase number two, after they lose the ball. Defensively, we've seen them high-pressing. We haven't seen them back deeper. And then, again, we've also seen them in transition a little bit, especially in the second half of this game, I think, Taylor. And to be honest with you, I don't think they were very good in transition. I thought it was a lot of sloppy passing, too many turnovers, and they made life a little bit too easy for Panama. Let's talk about that second half then, because... Like we, this was more of the game that I think you and I talked about in our preview for the Wales game of it's really hard with friendlies because after the 60th minute, you start getting changes and maybe it's just one or two, but usually it's a few more. And that tends to be when I stop sort of seriously paying attention. And I really had to make myself focus in this second half because it felt like even when it was three to two, I was never really worried about Panama somehow pulling it back or maybe even getting a win. It still just felt like, all right, the United States is going to need to kick into gear here, and it just took them longer than I thought it would. But I do have some explanations for why I think things went poorly in the second. Do you have some ideas as well? I do. Why don't you go first, and then I'll follow behind. Sure. I think I think one thing to start is just a very basic thing, is that Panama changed things up. And, and we can talk about the ways in which they do that, because I think there are three. The first one being they change personnel. They make two changes at halftime. Not that it's a fundamental change. They don't go to a back five or anything like that. But I think they bring on players that allow them to play more of a two banks of four solid defensive approach. And I think in the first half, sometimes they were in a 4-4-2 defensively. Sometimes it was a 4-2-2-2. Sometimes it was a 4-1-3-2. But you had a lot of variety, which to me was not intentional. It was the United States pulling them out and causing problems and overloading and then counterpressing. And I think they really struggled to play out of that pressure, but handle that pressure. And I think once they went to something that was just much more defensive and solid, they could do that defensive work more, but it also meant they weren't going to be as attacking or trying to build those sustained attacks. So to your point, you don't get the United States sitting back and absorbing pressure and then hitting on the break the way you might get if they were, say, if the United States is leading Mexico, certainly, or Costa Rica three to one, you can sort of bank that Costa Rica are going to be aggro coming out in the second half. And I think uh, Panama took the opposite approach. So that's one for me is that I think their second half approach was to be more defensive and conservative. It's funny because I saw some of those things as well. But I also saw moments where Panama pushed nine guys forward into the attacking Mm -hmm. half and occasionally sustained moments of possession. And their ability to strike that balance between more compact, solid defensive play and then more aggressive attacking play, I think that caught the U.S. a little bit off guard. Mm -hmm. And that pinned the United States back at times when they weren't ready to be pinned back. Okay. So what, what do you think the United States could have done then to better handle that? So I don't think, and Taylor, correct me if you disagree or just, you know, pipe in whenever you want. I don't think Panama pushing numbers forward in those specific moments is really much of a problem for the U.S. Yes, they get scored on in the 79th minute, I think it is. But overall, if we take away that mistake from Matt Miazga in the middle of the U.S. defensive group, I'm not too concerned about Panama pushing forward. I think for me, the concern and where I thought the U.S. was lacking is once they won the ball after Panama had pushed those eight or nine guys forward – 
once they won the ball, it was it was poor. It wasn't yeah. these aggressive, incisive passes or runs to get forward into the attack. It was a couple passes and, and a half-hearted attempt to get forward or a real attempt to get forward, followed by a turnover. And that pattern, I think we saw too many times. I want to be clear, I'm not putting too much stock into anything from this game, but especially a few minutes in the second half of a, a friendly against Panama. But in general, I think if we're looking for areas of improvement or if we're looking for reasons why the second half lacked that same intensity and that same joyous attacking play that we really did see in the first half, I think sloppy passes in transition and failing to take advantage of the space in Panama's half is right up at the top of my list. Again, this maybe sounds like overly simplifying things, but I I found myself wondering it, so I'll throw it out there now. There were moments in that second half when when you could sort of see the familiar symptoms of a team that think they're up 5-0. And it's like the player, like, I want to take somebody on. I want to get an assist. Like, you you could tell that everybody thought there were goals to be had, and that ends up being the case because they score three more. But I'm with you that there were moments of like, oh, in the first half, you don't make that run. In the first half, you don't try as many take-ons there. You you lay that ball off. And I think you're right that maybe there was a lack of patience with the United States in the second half. And I, I'm, a, I'm a believer, not really, but I, I do kind of agree with it, that soccer really should only be 45 minutes long. Probably the the second thirty minutes of the the first and half, Trump, and then a, yeah. a few minutes of the uh, the second half. Mm-hmm. I think that's when the best soccer is played, and the U.S. largely did dominate that section. Not necessarily the first fifteen minutes of the second half. They weren't great coming out of the break, but I'm not. Again, I'm not inclined to put a ton of stock yeah. into a second half where the U.S. changed their their personnel and changed things, and, and Panama won a couple of 50-50s, yes, and, and yep. drew a couple of yellow cards. But overall, I think it's fair to talk about, and I, I'm glad we did, Taylor, because I, I wanted to talk about the second half. Yep. But I just want to I just want to be clear that I don't think it's a huge concern. Nor do I. Nor do I. But I, I also think there were sort of like, like non-playing factors here because, as I said, I think Panama changed up their approach. I think you're right. They do have occasions where they have numbers committed forward. I think they have occasions when they are very defensive. And I also think that they were more focused on like not really bridging those two things. Uh, and the best way I can explain that is that in the first half, I think they're really focused on building out of the back. Even when the United States had their front three standing on the 18, Panama were still passing to their center backs or trying to find the holding midfielder. And I think they were really dedicated to trying to build, which almost played directly into the U.S.'s hands. And I think in the second half, they're more inclined to go long. They're not as sort of like slow on the ball. They're moving it more quickly. Even if that's just sort of dumping it long into the channels, I think they're willing to take those risks. But I think this also coincides with the game starting to bubble up a little bit and the referee... I think to his credit, uh, but does stamp the authority down a little bit pretty early. And that's where you get those two yellow cards in, I think, two or three minutes for the United States. And he starts calling more fouls more consistently. And that's also going to kill the game down- off a little bit. Because now if you've got a team going direct on occasion, but you're getting called for the fouls, you're maybe going to be less focused on, like, how do we win the ball back immediately with high-intensity pressure? And more on, all right, let's make sure that we don't concede cheap fouls. We don't let them back into this via individual mistakes. But I think the game getting more chippy at the end of the first half and little kicks and little maybe contact that didn't need to happen. Serginho Dest gets clipped a few times and cleared out a few times after he's passed the ball. That happens to Weston McKinney as well. But I think the game getting more physical, the official trying to make sure that didn't get overly physical and Panama being a bit more direct, I think also to blame for a more sloppy second half. 
And then the second half of any game, but especially friendlies, I think are also mm-hmm. choppy because of all the changes. You talked about some of Panama's changes. The U.S. made several subs. I think it was six total in the second half. That disrupts things, too. That changes rhythms. That changes combinations and rotations. It changes how the team plays in certain ways. Those substitutions from Berhalter, I'm glad they were made. I think it's great to get a, even a short look at some of these guys yep. or a second short look at some of these guys. But that also is a really big rhythm disruptor for second halves yeah. of friendlies. True, true. I think he also then maybe played into that a little bit, Berhalter, because when Sebastian Soto comes on, I sort of like knowing what I know of him and watching what I've seen of him, I was going to be surprised if if uh, Berhalter asked him to do the exact same role as Joe Aquini and as Legette before him. But I also simultaneously wouldn't have been that surprised because it's like, yeah, let's see if you can do this. If you can't, you can't. But we want to know. And from going back and watching again, I feel like Soto does a more conventional number nine's job, but that works as well. That I thought he did a good job of sort of stretching the defense, pushing those center backs to stay a little bit deeper and opening up space for more players in the midfield, but then gets on the end of balls into the box, uh, is trying to, in the lead up to, I think, the fifth goal or maybe his first goal. I forget which one. They might be the same thing. But, um, but I think he has one where like he, I think Joachini would have dropped in and tried to link up play, and instead Soto makes a darting run in behind to the opposite channel, and then the ball goes out wide, and then the cross comes in, but and then he recycles his run, and that just felt like more conventional number nine stuff. So I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if you agree with me that he he did things differently, but I think he did, and therefore it seems kind of cool to me that Greg Berhalter can change up the U.S.'s attacking approach a little bit on the fly and seems to have the personnel to do that at least against the weekend Panama team. I noticed the same thing with Soto staying okay, a little cool. bit higher, not dropping in happy. as much. Yeah, I know we're definitely on the same page in that regard. I think that speaks to Berhalter's thought process, and I, I'm guessing here, and I, I've had this thought before, I think Berhalter has two options for that number nine. One is the Jossi Zardes mold. The other one is the Josie Altador mold. One drops in more, the other one stays higher more often. I don't know if that's what's actually happening in Berhalter's head, but these few minutes of Sebastian Soto do kind of make me think that that might be the case, and that's a lot of qualifiers there, which was intentional. <laughs> but Sebastian Soto did stay higher, I think, in this game, got in the box more, and it worked. It was the end of the game, sure, so maybe you're a little bit more reliant on crosses, and that's all fine. It worked out. He got two goals, and Richie Ledesma looked really good serving the ball up to him. Yeah, he did. I almost wish we could have seen uh, maybe not Ledesma starting the game. That would have been fine too. But like, let's say we had uh, Conrad De La Fuente and Timothy Weah starting the game and then Reyna and Soto came on. I feel like Soto in the movements I saw and the way he sort of leads that line, that seems like what uh, Reyna is more familiar with with Erling Holland. I am not saying that, 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 that Holland and Soto are on the same level. I don't think they're even in the same ballpark or the same sport necessarily. But uh, it's similar movements. It's similar ideas. And I do wonder if Reyna would have looked maybe a little bit sharper having a more conventional forward in front of him than he did. Because I don't think Reyna had a bad game and the free kick is, is definitely pretty smart. But I also think I saw moments from him I saw a little bit more patience there's a there's a moment when there's a throw in and uh, Amado Cooper would not give him the ball back and Reina doesn't lose his temper just kind of keeps following and asking him for the ball but then we have the moment where he kind of yells uh, when Jokini takes the penalty and misses it I don't know how much that's going to stick with me or how annoyed that really made me but I, I don't think this was in as much as we've praised everybody else I, I think like Reina had a good game but I don't think like made that move to the next level the way I think some other players did in my in my estimations. 
It's funny because getting a look at Timothy Weah off the bench, I'm not so sure that Gio Reyna is necessarily ahead of Tim Weah in my winger depth chart. And that, Hmm. again, doesn't matter at all what I think in this regard. I mean, it just doesn't make any difference. They're both good players and they're different players. I want to be clear about that. But Tim Weah is a very different type of player. And I like what he brings to the table. I like what Gio Reyna brings to the table. I want to be very cautious in how I say this because Gio Reyna is going to be a big part of this team for a long time. And I'm glad it's okay. It's it's okay to call out realistically where he is, where the drawbacks in his game are, where the competition is going to be. I think too quickly, I'm just coming to your defense here, Joe, that I think too quickly, any negative comment is met with like, but he's so good. You guys are so negative. You have your biases against him. I have zero bias against Gio Reyna. I just think that, to your point, he's going to be an incredibly important player, both at club level, from whomever that is long term, but also for the U.S. national team. But you can't have that if you don't have growth moments and periods where you sort of change what you're doing and change your approach and change your mentality. And I think not necessarily that he's there right now. It's two friendlies. I don't want to take away massive things. But I think we saw certain limitations to his game. I think we saw certain areas in which other people can't come close to what he does. But just sort of pointing out the areas that could be developed to make him an all-rounded player too often I think becomes like, oh, Joe hates Gio Reyna, which is a massive oversimplification. But now you do have a title for the show, so you're Joe welcome. Joe hates Gio Reyna? I might yeah, do that. Perfect. I might do that just to annoy you. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love why, the point well, you made. Answer a question. It'll be why Joe hates Gio Reyna. Fair enough. Yeah, you got to give people a reason to listen, right? I like the the point that you made, Taylor. I love the point that you made about Reyna working better with a more traditional number nine, a, a get-in-behind number nine. Maybe that's not a traditional number nine. Anyway, him working off of a, a get-in-behind guy. We see that with Erling Holland, and that's not going to be replicated anywhere else outside of PSG if he plays with Kylian Mbappe right now. But the overarching point there is really good. Tim Weah, if he's in the lineup, I think you don't even really worry about any of that stuff. He's good in tight spaces, but he's also so fast, more more able to accelerate quicker than Gio Reyna is. He can get in behind it on his own. He can dribble on his own. He can do a lot of things that are similar in some ways to Gio Reyna, but on a different level in other ways. Reyna, again, better in tight spaces or at least better on the half turn. I like Timothy Weah. All that to say, all that rambling aside, I like Tim Weah. I'm glad we got to see him in this game. He was skilled. He was fast. I thought he brought a lot to the table. I agree with you. I I I still think it's probably if we're going our like if we have a World Cup qualifier tomorrow, it's probably Reyna on one side, Pulisic on the other. If both Agreed. are fully healthy, but I I also agree with you that I think Timothy Weah as that super sub. I, I have no problems with because I think you're going to get a lot of the same stuff. Gio Reyna with good defensive work and tracking back and just hassling the opponent. And that's a big part of counterpressing. Even if you're not necessarily going to win the ball, it's making your opponent do something they don't want to. It's forcing them to change direction or pass the ball in a different way or just slow down for a second or two. And Reyna, I think, has that that next level awareness that is so hard to have if you don't just naturally have it. But the ability to have your brain switch from attack to defense and back to attack, rapid fire like that, is such an underrated skill set that he seems to be very adept at. That if you don't have the ball anymore, like I talked about him complaining on the penalty, but that aside, you don't have a lot of those moments where he's made a run, the ball doesn't come, and now he throws his hands in the air and he walks back. I feel like he switches into, the ball hasn't come, what do I do next? We've lost the ball, what do I do next? I think his reading of the game is really, really rapid fire. So I I like Gio Reyna, and I'm excited to see where he goes. Same thing for Timothy Weah, but all of that somehow brings me back to Tyler Adams. Do you mind if I talk more about Tyler Adams for a second? I'm just so eager to hear how you got from point A to point B on that one. So yes, please go ahead. 
I think because of the the defensive work, I forget specifically why I wanted to talk more about Tyler Adams. Oh, because if we're talking about why the second half wasn't as good, a massive part of that to me is that Tyler Adams comes out in the 60th minute. And it's it's again in this in the same way Gio Reyna can switch from attack to defense and back really quickly. Tyler Adams does that as well, but also does it while talking. <laughs> it seems to be that like he can he can almost like organize the defense, make sure everybody's got their marks but simultaneously put himself in a good position and communicate it with other people and then make a play on the ball. And I thought he did so many different things simultaneously. He is this sort of linchpin to me in that midfield, in a midfield that is so talented, as we've already talked about. I think he is the most important player. And I don't really know what they do when he comes out, because once he does, not no disrespect to Johnny, who does a good job, it's just he's not Tyler Adams. He can't organize the defense and track a runner, but also make sure somebody else is tracking a run, but being aware of a third man running, arriving late. Like I think Tyler Adams just does so many things so quickly. It's it's really difficult to compare him to anybody else because I just don't think there's another player in the pool who can do that as well. Maybe Yunus Musa, as you said, but I think Tyler Adams going, it removes a lot of like the proactivity from the U.S. approach and instead is more everybody do your individual work. Everybody sort of work really, really hard and we'll see this one out. I have a feeling that the phrase, he's not Tyler Adams, is going to be one that we say and that we yeah. hear said a lot anytime anyone other than Tyler Adams starts as a central defensive midfielder for the U.S. <laughs> men's national team. It yeah. just is a different level. It's a different type of position when anyone else but him plays there right now. And that's fine because that's, I mean, the odds of the U.S. developing another Tyler Adams is pretty slim, at least for the next couple of years, to see a guy come through the pipeline but yeah, Tyler Adams is great at soccer, and he's a huge contributor to this <laughs> midfield. And I'm with you, Taylor. The dip was noticeable just because Cardoso is a different kind of player, and that's okay. But that was a very real part of the second half struggles as well. So as I said, we're not going to go through every single goal. We might not even talk about every single player who played. Uh, one thing I would like to do before we end, Joe, I don't want to end on a negative necessarily, but I do want to talk a little bit about some players who maybe – either didn't have a good camp or whose stock fell a little bit because of this camp. I would say we've already talked about Michael Bradley. I think though he's not involved, I think like what this camp taught us is that might, he might be even less involved. Uh, I think that that's the case for maybe a couple other players. Maybe this is unfair because again, it is a weakened Wales team. It is a weakened Panama team. But like, I, I do find myself wondering if Josh Sargent is watching these games and thinking like, uh-oh, like I could have done those things and now I haven't <laughs> and somebody else has. And maybe there's just a little bit of concern there. Maybe it makes him raise his game, rising tide, that sort of thing. But, uh, but yeah, Josh Sargent not getting to score goals and be involved in this team, not being able to show us that he can do some of those things that Burhalter wants, I think, doesn't necessarily hurt him, but it definitely did not help him, put it that way. Yeah, I thought about Josh Sargent in, as I was watching the second half, watching Soto score a couple of goals and thinking, man, two number nines got braces in this game, but Josh Sargent is sitting on his couch, you know, watching. That's a yep. little bit, that's a little bit tough for him. For me, a guy whose stock went down or maybe a group of guys whose stock went down is not because of anything that they did again, but it's because of the play of the midfield. Sebastian Legette is one of them, not because yep. of the false nine thing, but because he comes off the bench in this game to play in the midfield. He's not. At this point, if if Musa does pick the United States, he's not in that starting group of players no. unless Greg Berhalter has a change of heart or something else happens. The same thing goes for the other players coming up. Their path into the starting 11 for the U.S. is now harder than it's probably ever been. And that's great for the national team, but harder yes, for guys like Pamacau and Aronson and Sebastian Legette. 
And I think that's what makes me to, to go back to it again. This coming summer makes me really excited because we'll have the Olympics. We'll have Nations League. We'll have Gold Cup. Uh, probably some friendlies leading into that. Uh, there have been talks about various camps that might happen between now and then. But I think we're going to have so many opportunities to see so many of these players in so many different roles and with so many different teams that I think we'll have better ideas of who fits where coming out of that summer. But this camp, I think, made me more hyped for what's to come than any other one has. My only other negative I wanted to mention briefly is just that in talking about if we're playing a World Cup qualifier tomorrow, who starts at top, if we're playing a World Cup qualifier tomorrow, I still think it's Zach Steffen and goal. I think it's John Brooks and Matt Miazga as your center backs. I have more uncertainty about the fullback position. And right now, again, recency bias, but I feel like it might be Dest and Cannon as the starting fullbacks if we're going to go with the attacking ones. And that means by definition, I think Anthony Robinson loses out a little bit, maybe comes out of this camp, not raising his game the way at least I would have liked to have seen him done. I think that's another guy who may have had his stock lowered or maybe yeah. maybe I should say lowered his stock because the Wales <laughs> game wasn't great from him. And then no. you come out and you see Reggie Cannon do a job at right back. Reggie Cannon is not a, a flashy guy, but he got the job done at right back and Sergio Dest didn't look out of place at left back. I mean, he's playing for Barcelona at left back sometimes, so I'm not surprised by that. But yeah, Robinson's in a bit of a tough spot right now as well, which again, good thing. He's got to work his way back into the lineup if that's what is going to happen for him. But I, I'm pretty comfortable with Reggie Cannon on one side and Sergino Dest on the other side if there is that World Cup qualifier tomorrow. Yeah, all right. So there we go. It also, I would assume there would be another fullback brought in if we were going, if we were putting together a World Cup roster, you'd probably have two center backs, two replacements, two fullbacks and two replacements. But with Dest being able to do either one, that could be a replacement right back or a replacement left back because I think Robinson probably still gets called in again if we're putting together a World Cup squad tomorrow. I think it's probably Robinson as the backup left back with Dest as the starting left back and that it's Canada as the right back with like maybe Chris Richards doing double duty. Who knows? But I think it gives you a bit more freedom to not have as many defenders. I wouldn't feel so comfortable with that. I always love having backups at every single position, but it does give us a bit more flexibility in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that gives us room to bring uh, 18 bajillion attackers, which is exactly <laughs> what I want to see happen. Um, any other things we should talk about with this one? Uh, again, I know there's things we've missed. It was a strange game, and there's lots to discuss, but we've talking about it for, been talking about it for a while, so I don't want to take up too much more time from you or our listeners. No, I think my, my last overarching takeaway is that this young European-based contingent, and I know there are a few guys who aren't from the European base, but... By and large, this young part of the player pool is pretty talented. They're fun to watch. They're good players. A lot of them are, are ready for the national team's starting 11 right now. I think that is the main thing that we've learned from this camp. And for me, that's probably the most encouraging thing that we could have learned from this camp. So overall, I'm a pretty happy camper after these couple of games. Well, speaking of campers, we may well have another camp uh, before the year well is out. Done. There's some well, – thank you. There's some talk. <laughs> uh, like I, I genuinely don't know how concrete it is because I haven't read more about it before we recorded. But it sounds like there could be an all-domestic team in December if we do another camp there. Joe, one thing maybe you and I could do as a show – uh, or you could do as a show without me, uh, if, if new baby arrives sooner rather than later is maybe look at which MLS players could fit some of these roles 
like like in the best possible way so that if Halter wanted to have a team that could do this same thing that was more domestic based how would that look and would that work does that seem like a thing that is possible or is it just sort of like nah they'd have to do something else no that sounds great I think there's right. a, a really good show to be made there thank you for doing my uh, my homework <laughs> for me I really appreciate that it's my pleasure it's my pleasure <laughs> uh, well Joe thank you for taking the time to chat with me about the US National Team's 6-2 win over Panama get appropriately hyped but then also remain appropriately rational and calm in our appraisals anytime taylor thank you my my pleasure my friend and until weston mckinney wins the ballon d'or which will probably happen this year listeners thank you all very much for listening and we will talk to you all again soon 